0: Hey, good morning. It really is just such a gift to be able to come together and worship. I I think that when we have these opportunities to be together like this, it's such a reminder of the way that God has provided for us with the goodness of community. So I'm thankful that you're here. Love, love that you are a part of RCC. When you came in, um, as we have been going through this year where we wanna become a people who pray like our lives depend on it, you saw that we have a new prayer tool kind of out in the lobby, it's a prayer board. And what that is, is really just an opportunity for us to write down what we're praying for, maybe even a way that you've seen God answer prayers. And we don't do that because we think that this is like enhancing your prayers somehow. It's not like God's in heaven and he's on the fence. And he's like, well, since you put it on a note card, I guess my hands are tied, okay. It's not how it works, but there is something good about sharing the way that God is moving in our lives with one another, and so this is a fun way that we want to do this just for the next two weeks, so take a minute, stop by, tell us what you're praying for, tell us how God is working, and Maybe you walk by and see some of the prayer requests up there. Maybe you join in and take some time to pray for those this week. Here's what we want to talk about. We've got two weeks left of this series called Pathway to Dependence before we jump into a series on the Lord's Prayer. We have talked a lot about setting a foundation for the vision of the year. Why do we pray? What's hard about praying? Why should we pray? Today, I want to talk about what we should pray for. I think there's this question, well, is it okay to pray for that? Is it not? Can we pray for pets? Is God cool? Like, can we pray for more money? What, what am I not allowed to pray? Can I pray for a spouse? Can I pray for a different spouse? Like, what, is, what should we be praying for, right? And so here, here's the answer to what should we pray for? Everything. We should pray about everything. Scripture says that God wants to hear from us, that we should bring all of our cares and all of our concerns to God. And for some of us, we know exactly what we feel like we wanna pray for right now. We want to pray for we're like, man, I have this issue going on in my life. I have this need. I have this fear, and it's there. Others of man, I don't really know what we should pray for. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you know that there's been probably a time in your life where you've been on one of those two extremes. I know exactly what I'm praying for. I have no idea what to pray for. And so what we want to do today is ground in Scripture what we should be praying for. Um, So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in the book of James today. And if you're a guy, we have a men's Bible study starting here in a couple of weeks on Friday mornings where we'll be going through the entire book of James led by Brick, one of our elders. And so um, if you have not had an opportunity to be a part of that study and Friday mornings work for you, um, go online, check it out. We'd love to have you jump in with us. And so we're gonna be in James and we're gonna look and see what we should be praying for as Believers, specifically in terms of our spiritual needs, what should we as believers be praying for? And so as we see this, we've got to remember who he's writing to. James is writing these, these letters to Christians who are dispersed around the Roman Empire who are suffering from persecution. So these are people with a long prayer list. These are not people with easy lives. And so there's probably a lot that they would say they're ready to pray about needing. And so here in James chapter one, verse one, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So let's just stop there for a second because this is a little bit different than some of our reflex around prayer. A lot of the times when we pray, we say, God, we don't want trials. God, if you could make things easy and comfortable, that would be great for me. And I think it's okay to pray that. It's just, it's not exactly what James is calling the reader to as they approach the trials in their life. He says, count it all joy when there are trials. Why in the world would we do that? He says that trials, the testing of our faith, produces steadfastness. Another word for that would be endurance. He says, when you hit trials, when there's difficulty in your life, it produces an endurance. And I love what he says in verse 4. He says, let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's saying that there's something about difficulty and trials that God uses to form and mature us in our faith. God doesn't cause trials. God's not evil. God does not do bad things. However, God redeems the bad things that result as a consequence of a broken world. God uses trials and difficulties to make us more complete. When trials happen, we become a people that have an easier time trusting in the Lord. When trials happen, we grow in patience and grace and maturity. When trials happen, we become more like Jesus. So there's something about trials that when we endure them are actually good for our spiritual formation doesn't mean that we should ask for trials, but we can count trials joy because they're good for our souls. And so what do we pray for? He says, actually, we pray for endurance. I think as Christians, this isn't always something that we think about, right? But I think one of the ways that James is calling us to approach trials is by praying for the endurance to get through them specifically the people that he was writing to, the trials that they were encountering were often centered around persecution for their faith. And so as they were trying to follow Jesus, they would be physically threatened, they would lose their jobs, they would be socially ostracized. And a lot of the trials that they experienced were kind of centered around that dynamic. You know, for us, our trials might look different, but I think that the temptation is the same. Because in the midst of being persecuted for their faith, in the midst of losing their jobs, in the midst of being beaten up or or losing family relationships, I think there was this temptation for them to walk away and say, I don't know that this is worth it. We're not generally persecuted for our faith in the same way, but I do think that all of us have been in spaces in our faith where we feel tired, where we question God. God, is it really worth it for me to follow you? What if you don't come through? God, is it really worth me being obedient to you and suffering financially? God, is it worth me being obedient to you and actually calling out sin in the life of the people that are close to me? It might cost me a friendship. God, is it worth being close to you and treating people differently than the world does when they've done me wrong? And we get tired. And we feel beat up and we feel exhausted and we feel like our faith isn't working. And I I, I really do think all of us find ourselves in these places at some point where we question if it's worth it. And the temptation is to disengage and walk away from God because we find him to be untrustworthy or vindictive. And when we don't endure trials, scripture would say we miss out on the spiritual reality of becoming whole and complete in who God has made us to be. And so as we consider engaging a year where God is calling us to be dependent on him, I truly believe that one of the most powerful ways that we can pray for ourselves is that God would give us endurance that he would help us continue to be obedient and follow him even when it's hard, even when it feels like pragmatically it's not working, right? And that goes against everything about how we believe the world's supposed to work as modern Western people, right? We believe that there's this inherent pragmatism woven into the strands of the universe where if I do these three things right, then it'll produce this outcome. You even hear this taught in some um, religious circles where, hey, if you just give a lot of money, then God will make you rich. Hey, if you just behave, then your life will be better. Hey, if you can check these boxes the way that the Bible tells you to, then you'll have this really nice comfortable upper middle class life, right? Like you hear that. And scripture would call us out of a religious pragmatism into a trust in God that says, even when it feels like God practically isn't working, he's still good. Even when you don't get the promotion because of your faith, God's still good and it's still worth it. Joel talked about it a little bit as he was leading us in worship, that there's this eternal reality that is better than the constraints of the physical reality that we live in right now. And when we follow Jesus, we begin to step into that faith and belief that it's okay if we suffer right now because something better is coming. And for a lot of us, we've gotta continue to ask God to give us the endurance to continue. Because listen, there's times where it does feel like you wanna give up. Your health is bad. Your family members' health is bad. God didn't seem like he healed the way that he did in other places in scripture. Your life doesn't look like other people's lives. It just doesn't feel like things are going well. It's like, I just wanna throw in the towel. Scripture would say, don't give up. Don't give up because look, let endurance or steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect to complete and lacking in nothing. There is a maturity and a wholeness that waits for us on the other side of our trials. We just have to keep walking. And listen, some days, maybe all you can do is take the step of praying and asking God for help. That's okay. Maybe some days it's just enough that you stay in bed and rest. This doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. This doesn't mean that we have to do everything correctly. Because when you're in the middle of a trial, you don't have the strength to do that. Some days it's just enough for us to say, God, please help me. I need you. And that's all we got. But scripture says that's enough. And so one of the most powerful prayers that we can pray for one another is that we would have the endurance to continue when we're tired, when we're disenfranchised, when we're frustrated, when we're cynical, when we're angry at God. One of the best ways that we can pray is that we would just have the endurance to keep going and trust that with every step that we have the the ability to take, even if it's a step backwards, that God is still going to be with us. So we've got to be able to pray for endurance. Let's keep going. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here's the really obvious ask here, right? Is that we should pray for wisdom. This makes a lot of sense. We need wisdom. In, In multiple places in scripture, God tells his people, ask for wisdom. And here's why. We live in an incredibly complicated world. One of the dangers of the place that we are societally right now is there's this reflex that everything, whether it be a social issue, a political issue, a spiritual issue, everything can be boiled down to a 40-character soundbite that we can scream at the other person online, right? Everything is supposed to be this black and white, simple, zero-sum game. The reality is something like 1% of the world actually operates like that. If you throw something up in the air, it's going to fall. Outside of the laws of physics, and even those are subject to change apparently, I'm not a science guy, there's very little that's certain. We live in an unbelievably complex world that is getting more complex by the day. If we are going to engage that world well to reflect the truth of who Jesus is, we need wisdom, right? And the types of decisions that we wanna make, we need wisdom. There are definitely black and white places you can go in scripture that are gonna tell you what you need to do. Worship God above anything else. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder people. Forgive, love. You know what you can't read in the Bible? What job should I take? Should I change careers? Should I marry this person? Should I put my kids in travel sports? Should I sell my business? Who should I vote for? How uncomfortable is everyone right now? What is he going to say next? Don't worry, we're going to move on, but I'm just going to let that linger. There is a lot of very important decisions that you make and I make on a daily basis, and the Bible doesn't spell out exactly what we should do, like an Ikea furniture thing, right? So how can we be faithful in following Jesus in a world that is an insanely complex place? We ask God for wisdom. It says he gives it freely to us. God wants us to make wise choices. God wants us to understand and be shrewd. God wants us to be able to look at the world and see what a good decision looks like. It is good for us to ask for wisdom. He kind of goes on and he says, it's a little bit confusing because it says that, uh, let him who ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave that's tossed in the wind that person won't receive anything. He's double-minded and unstable in all his ways. This verse has been twisted and misused a lot because people will take this and say, see, if you just have faith, then God will give you what you want. If God's not answering your prayers, you don't have enough faith. And there's been an unbelievable amount of damage and scarring done by the misapplication of this verse. This is not saying if you just believe hard enough, God will give you what you want. He's not a genie. He doesn't sound like Robin Williams. That is not what this is saying. Okay? Here's what this is saying. This is saying that when you go to the Lord, he wants you to go with a full understanding and faith in him. That doesn't mean that you're going to get whatever you want. But what it does mean is if you don't go to God as who he is, then you're not going to engage him properly. If you've seen The Mummy, um, because it talks about being a double-minded man. This is actually a picture that you see in the Old Testament quite a bit they use the same language to talk about a person as kind of having two parts. There's the good part and the bad part. There's good and evil in every person, right? and they would refer to that as double-minded or double-hearted um, or double sold even in some cases. He's saying, if you're double-souled, you, here's another way of saying this, if you're treating God like one option on a menu, then he's not gonna engage you well because you're not treating him as God. You're treating him like a tool. And so if you've seen The Mummy, like there's the shady guy, Benny, who sells out, sorry, spoiler alert, Brennan Fraser um, and his wife. And so the mummy like is attacking him and this, this shady guy has these pendants as a necklace and he starts praying um, as the mummy's attacking him to all of these different gods so he, he holds up the star of David and is praying in Hebrew then he holds up um, the crescent moon and is praying in Arabic then he holds up the cross and is praying in English then he holds up um, a Buddha and is praying in Hindi and so like you see him just trying all of these different gods hoping something will work that's what this is referring to he says don't treat God like he's an option If you'd go to God, double-minded, saying, hey, I'm going to pray, but I don't know that you're going to work, so I'm also going to do this other stuff. He says that person's not engaging. The Lord is who he is. That's idolatrous in using God like um, a vending machine. That's that's not how we're called to go to him. This is not a promise that if you just have enough faith, God will give you a mansion too. Not, Not what it says, okay? Generally speaking, if the person giving you advice on how to pray has ever been indicted for tax fraud, you want to stay away from that. And so, this does not mean that you want to go to the Lord and just have faith to get what you need. It does mean that we need to treat God as who He is. It does mean that we need to understand that we are completely dependent on Him and He is good. Even when He doesn't say yes, He is still good. And so, we need to ask for wisdom. As a people, we want to be wise. We want to be single-minded. We want to be single-hearted. We want to go to the Lord knowing that he is the only place that we find hope. Let's keep going. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So there's actually some disagreement with commentators on whether or not the wealthy in this verse are Christians. Um, there, there is a wave of commentators that would say the poor are believers and the wealthy are non-believers. And he's speaking to a cultural context where the wealthy are oppressing the poor Christians. Um, generally speaking, that is probably not for grammatical reasons. We don't have time or maybe the interest of getting too deeply into right now, most people would say that both are believers, that he's speaking to two groups of Christians. He's speaking to Christians with money and without money. Here's what he's not saying, that Christians with money are evil or worse or God's going to punish you for having money. Not what it says. It's not what this says. What he is doing is calling both believers, the wealthy believer and the unwealthy believer. Unwealthy, is that a word? Did I make that up? to the same concept. At the end of the day, everything that we have now does not matter that much in light of eternity. So he's saying, let the man who is poor rejoice in the fact that even in his poverty, he is lifted up by who he is in Jesus and the eternal life that he has. He says, let the man who is rich delight in the humiliation that he has, that all of his wealth and all of his power and all of his stuff in the light of the reality of an eternal living God and salvation is nothing. Salvation raises the man who is poor in his identity above his earthly constraints. It also lowers the believer who is wealthy out of the illusion that his earthly stuff gives him anything. And both of those movements up and down bring the believer closer to the reality of the eternal life that we have. This is reframing how we define success and having our needs met. He's saying, if you don't have a lot, that's okay because you have Jesus. He says, if you have a lot, that's okay because you have Jesus. And here's why he expounds a little on he who has a lot. He says that eventually all of your stuff is gone. The poor believer doesn't have the stuff, and so that's why they're being raised. He's saying, listen, the stuff is actually dangerous because it fools you. And so he says... The flower of the grass will pass away. Just like when the sun rises, it withers grass, and the flower falls, and beauty perishes, the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. And again, this is consistent language with what you see in the Old Testament. Think about like um, right now, we're starting to ease into fall, starting to get a little more pleasant outside, and what you see happen is the plants die. They don't last very long. And there's this picture of everything that we build up that's temporal and how it actually kind of unfolds over time. He's saying that all of the stuff that we spend so much time accumulating and raising up and obsessing over and giving our lives to, he says, in the scope of eternity, it's like that. It's just like a flower or grass. It has a season and then it dies and is gone forever. And so it's a reframing of what we're pursuing that has value. And so here's what this should call us to pray for. It should call us to pray for provision. Let me explain that because that could be confusing because this says that stuff fades away and it's gone. Okay, so let's reframe and talk about this a little bit. We're going to get into this on a, on a deeper level when you get into the Lord's Prayer, but what this is saying is that stuff will go away and it's bad to put your identity in. Here's what it's not saying is that God wants us to be sick unhealthy and die it's not what it's saying it is healthy and good for us to to ask god to provide exactly what we need it is good for us to pray for provision both for ourselves and other people i think here's the challenge that we have culturally and this is not an issue that they would have faced when this was written because economically we're at a very different place than the new testament church We so often do not pray for provision. We pray for comfort and excess. And look, it's not because we're worse than anybody else. It's just the time we live in. But when we go to God, I think it's good for us to ask, how often are we praying for provision and how often are we praying for excess? Specifically through the lens of material, right? How often are we praying for excess? How often are we aware and content with the provision that he's already given us? Is it bad to pray for a new car? Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. But here's, here's the question I would ask you. Why? Why do you need the new car? You know, and this is the trap we fall into, especially in this area. Like, my car's fine. It's wonderful. No problems with my car. I'll be driving down the road, and I'll see the Porsche go by. It's Atlanta, maybe five Porsches. I'll be like, oh, man, that would be nice. My life might be better if I had some precision German engineering (laughs) that I could sit in traffic for an hour inside. (laughs) Right? Um, Or the houses you drop. Man, if I had a house like that, You're on Zillow creeping. They paid that much for that house. You know, like you're creeping the neighbor's house on Zillow. It's so easy for us to creep away from provision into excess in our prayer lives that this section of James just gives us this reminder that, listen, if you don't have anything, that's fine because you have eternal life. If you have a lot, that's great because you know that all your stuff doesn't really matter that much. So it re-centers our souls as we go to God and ask him for what we need. We should ask God for food, we should ask God for shelter, we should ask God for health, that's good, that's good. How often do we drift away from the contentment that we should have though, because we want more? I mean, even this week for me, like um, I I bought a pair of soccer cleats when my oldest was um, a baby, so 13 years ago, they blew up um, on the soccer field last week, so I had to buy new ones. And so it wasn't enough for me just to buy new soccer cleats, I had to look at the nice ones, you know? And I was like, hmm. $200 isn't that much for soccer cleats. These are better. These are half an ounce lighter. They'll increase my acceleration and my control of the ball. I don't have acceleration or control of a soccer ball, and that has nothing to do with my footwear. It's just this is my brain, right? Like, these are nicer. These are better. I did not get the $200 cleats um, because my wife would have gotten me. So I did not do that. I got the cheapest cleats I could find, but there was a moment that I was like, you know, It's not enough for me just to have the cleats. I need the nice cleats. I need the luxury cleats. That's our culture. I don't just need the basic stuff, I need the nice stuff. My life will be improved if the thread count on my sheets is a little bit higher, and I'm worth it. (laughs) If you have high thread count sheets, that's fine. Um, It's probably good, I don't know that that's a sin, but just when we think about our stuff, this just takes us back to this reality Because honestly, globally, all of us are the wealthy believer, okay? All of us are the wealthy believer in a global context. And all of our stuff is actually this area that we can let go of and rejoice in our humiliation because it pales in the comparison of the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. Go to God and ask for provision. Ask him for what you need. I guarantee you he will give it to you. And for us as Americans, I think a good thing to remember is he probably already has. <laughs> he probably already has. And so as we think about our stuff, we've got to remember, let's pray for provision. Let's not fall into the trap of praying for excess, right? Let's keep going. And he's going to lay the plane in, in a really important place. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. We talked about this, right? With the endurance, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, so this is important because he's talking about temptation. And a lot of times, I think there are two types of temptation. There's the external and the internal. So you do hear about, well, Satan's out to, yes, absolutely. Scripture makes it really clear. Satan is out to steal, kill, and destroy and wants to bring harm to God's creation. And we should absolutely be aware of the external temptation and the spiritual warfare that does happen. There's this other temptation we don't talk about as much. That's the internal temptation. Well, that's, if Satan's out to get me, it might just be you. You know, like there is a responsibility that we have of our own sin and brokenness. As we're growing in our faith, we have not been made completely perfect yet. That day is coming. It's not here yet. We're being refined and we're being sanctified. And so we should absolutely be aware of external temptations. We should also be aware of those temptations that are internal, right? Like our temptation to shade the truth, our temptation to trust other things other than God, our temptation to chase after lust, our temptation, whatever it might be. Scripture says that there's these internal temptations that will lead us away from Christ and into death. And so as we do that, there is this element of prayer that I think we need to pray and that's for protection. We should pray for protection from temptation. Now, God's not the one causing them. It's really clear. But God is the one that can protect us from them. Specifically, when we think about our desires, our temptation to run away from him, our temptation to want to control, to trust in stuff, to color outside the lines of what God has called good, those lead us away from God and into death. I don't believe that this text is talking about losing your salvation, but I do believe that this is saying, as children of God, when we run away from him and chase after the sin that brings death, the consequences will hurt us. And God doesn't want that for us. There are real consequences around sin. There's destruction that happens in its wake. God wants more for us. We have to have an awareness of those temptations and also ask God to help because we're gonna have those desires to reflex back into our flesh. So I mean, even for me, like I think one of the biggest temptation points for me is honestly my anger. And so this has evolved and how that's played out. Um, My wife brought this up accurately this week with my youngest having some problems at school and um, just some like some bully issues. He's in third grade. And I mean, I just like my brains melted out of my ears with rage. Um, and so she, she, and my oldest is like, Why is dad yelling? And my wife was like, Well, um, most behavior is the result of an emotion. And in dad's case, it's fear. And this is what that looks like. And she's right. In fear, I tend to want to go into a place of control and stopping everything that I'm afraid of. And for whatever reason, loud, angry aggression is my reflex of how I can tamp down anything that's scary. Fight or flight, I tend to be more fight, okay? And so for me in that moment, like I just am angry and I wanna fix this problem for my son. And so I'm mad. And in that moment, my desire is not rooted in anything that looks like grace or forgiveness or patience or kindness, really any fruit of the spirit. And it is entirely rooted in revenge and loud revenge. I actually don't need this microphone. I'm just genetically loud, okay? And so like, listen, this is just for the people online. And so in that moment, my temptation is, is to just be as angry and loud as possible to get what I want and control the world. Aside from not reflecting the love of Jesus, that's just not good parenting. And I don't know if you're an angry person. If you are, you know the anger hangover where your head hurts and you just feel tired after. And that's the place of temptation that I live in that I've got to continually ask God to guard against because what can't happen is the consequences of that anger to boil over. Like, I can't actually go yell at a teacher that I don't feel like has been responsible. I actually don't even think it was her fault. Um, I can't actually through my wrath, bring about justice to an unjust world. Only God can do that, right? When I do that, it just turns into sin and destruction. And so for me, that temptation is just to rely on being aggressive enough to fix a problem that I'm scared of. There is no faith or trust in God in that moment for me. There's no reflection of God's goodness or mercy or forgiveness. It's just me afraid of something that could hurt wanting to fix it of ties back into the trials and endurance, doesn't it? I don't want to endure a trial. I want to crush the opposition. It's not the model that God gave me, certainly not how I've been called to act. And so in those moments, one of the last things I think about doing is asking God to help me guard against the temptation in my soul to reflex to anger, right? And I wonder how my prayer life would be different and better if I would think through asking God to help me with my struggles, instead of me trying to white knuckle it with self-control or reading a book or whatever it might be, and none of those things are inherently bad, am I also going to the Lord and saying, God, I just need help with this temptation. I know this is an area that my heart wants to go. Would you help guard against that? Scripture is really clear that the man who avoids temptation is going to do well. And so, well, we should ask God for help with that, shouldn't we? And here's the good news. Here's the good news. In all of this, in all of this, God has already saved us from our sin. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has forgiven us where we've fallen short. He's given us a new heart and a new mind. He's promised us eternal life because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Because of his death and his resurrection, we have been promised salvation. It's ours. And so as we endure the walk towards eternity, we have a God that loves us and is faithful to do what he's promised. We pray to God because he wants to give us good things. And so this week, as we're thinking about what we pray for, the book of James has really given us some foundational spiritual prayers to pray. We should pray for our endurance, but also the endurance of the brothers and sisters of Christ that we have in this room. We should pray for wisdom, right? We should pray for provision. God, give us what we need. And we should pray for protection from external evil, but also from those broken places in us that will default us into destructive behaviors, right? We should pray for these things. And the good news is we can pray with the confidence that we have a God who loves us and will provide for us. A God that wants to steer us towards life and a God that wants to steer us towards a greater trust and faith in him. And so, like every week, we are going to celebrate the reality of who Jesus is and what he did by partaking in communion together. We have this bread and this juice and they tangibly represent the body and the blood of Jesus. It's this reminder that engages our souls that as we are praying these prayers, we are praying them as children of God because of what Jesus Christ did. The foundation of our worship is the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross and the resulting eternal life that we have been given as his children. And so as I pray and we prepare our hearts to engage and celebrate this communion, let's remember as we pray this week, let's pray for these spiritual pillars of the life of a believer. Let's pray for endurance and wisdom. Let's pray for provision and protection that as we grow in our faith, God would guide us and guard us into a fuller understanding of who he is. God, we thank you that you're a God who wants to give us good things. We thank you that you are a God who loves us enough to call us into a faith in you. Pray that as we are seeking to be a people that love you, that you would give us the boldness to trust you when it's difficult, that you would give us the wisdom to know what we should do. God, guard us from our brokenness. Guard us from the temptations that we have to walk away from you. Give us a peace that passes all understanding because of who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.